0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Senator, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on this um, uh, very important topic. Uh, I know it's, it's a carving time out of your schedule, but you've really taken uh, a, a tremendous effort to address some challenges facing the country and in the military in particular. And uh, you know, I'm talking about critical race theory and uh, how it might be implemented or how it is being implemented uh, in various uh, training sessions uh, in, in the military. But I'd like to acknowledge that that uh, you, know, you serve the country in uniform and the U.S. Army. Uh, from, uh, what, 2005 to 2009, uh, if I've got my uh, dates correctly on that, uh, earned the Army Ranger tab, served the 101st Airborne Division, two tours in uh, Afghanistan, and then served also with the Old Guard uh, to Arlington National Cemetery. So I'm guessing you know a little bit about small unit cohesion, uh, you know, service to country, what it means to really bring together in a, in a team environment, uh, working toward a common goal, common purpose, and serving a country that presumably we all love and are proud of and, and want to, to push further on down the road. So I mean, just jumping right into this material, uh, the idea of critical race theory as a subset of these larger cultural or ideological battles that are occurring across the country. Uh, You know, you've been very pointed that this is actually a divisive sort of thing. So if you could just elaborate
1: on that a bit and then we'll see where the conversation goes. Yeah, thanks Dakota for uh, having me on for discussing this important topic uh, and thanks for your kind introduction. Um, As you say, this is part of a broader series of conversations or controversies in a lot of institutions across our society. Um, But the military is probably the most important institution we have. I mean, look, if some woke CEO uh, forces foolish training on their employees, maybe their sales go down. Um, If universities go in this, maybe they don't get as many students uh, to apply and enroll. But what happens uh, if it harms unit cohesion and morale and esprit de corps in our military? um, Then we literally are risking our freedom. Uh, And that's why it's so important that the military's highest priority should remain what it always has been, to fight and win real wars, not to get distracted by culture wars. Um, Now, as you say, in in small units, um, you learn a lot of very tangible, very concrete skills. In the infantry where I served, it might be how to conduct an ambush or how to knock out a bunker and take down a trench line in the air force or navy perhaps it's maintaining the fighters uh that our pilots depend on uh in the marine corps and in the infantry just like the army or how to do an amphibious landing those are all very concrete practical tangible skills but you learn a lot of intangible things as well uh i you know, say to my old soldiers if they're thinking about leaving the army they should think very broadly about what their options are um because a lot of their concrete skills weren't Um, particularly marketable. I mean, there's not a big market in the private sector for knocking out a bunker or taking down a trench line, but people respect them for the discipline and the mission focus, um, the esprit de corps, the leadership, the integrity they displayed. And that's true in small units as well. Um, All of those very concrete technical and tactical skills are essential, but as essential is that high level of unit cohesion that Morale and esprit de corps, your de- dedication to your battle buddies. Um, we cannot have an Army, a Navy, Marine Corps, uh, Air Force, or Space Force where young troopers are looking to their left and right and, and seeing not a fellow citizen who took an oath to, sit to the Constitution, um, to someone who's willing to lay down their life, not just for their country, but to keep you alive. We can't have them looking at their non commissioned officers and their officers wondering if they're getting a tough duty because of the color of their skin. We need them to see each other simply as fellow Americans and fellow warriors who are there to perform the mission. Um, When the military allows the very insidious doctrines of critical race theory to seep into frontline training or professional military schools, and you start indoctrinating our troops to believe that. One skin color is the most important thing about oneself, that we should judge people by their skin color, not by the content of their character, as Martin Luther King would have it, that some races are somehow collectively guilty for what other people with the same skin color have done, or inherently oppressive or privileged, and other races are inherently victimized or oppressed. It is very dangerous to unit cohesion and morale, and that's one reason why I've been so active in the Senate, to try to stop it in its tracks.
0: It's it just, it just an amazing story. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, my time in the Marine Corps from 1985 to 2005, I was exiting as you were coming in. Um, it, it, I start off as a young second lieutenant, while we like we all do. And uh, you know, my one of my first units uh, was a motor transport, as a uh, you know, the truck section for an Marine Corps infantry battalion. And we had city kids and country kids, all different backgrounds in terms of economic strata. Uh, We had um, uh, African-Americans, we had, uh, you know, conventional, traditional European whites. Uh, My maintenance chief was an American Samoan. My operations chief was, uh, you know, a black American uh, Marine. And, uh, you know, they were all united in the same basic training. They all had to achieve their rank by merit. Uh, They all either took each other to task for not living up and operating the standards or uh, praising somebody you know, who had done a really great job. And it worked because there was just this common identity, you know, this this unified purpose pushing forward. And so I so appreciate the arguments you're bringing onto the Senate floor and in your various media uh, interviews that critical race theory in dividing people and creating these groups and then pitting them against each other, it calls all of that into question. You know, I mean, it truly does. And I see this as a subset, again, of this larger battle and that my experience in the military was it was a perfect representation of American ideals. And you talk about a melting pot and it didn't matter where you came from in life that you had the same access to education, training, promotion, all the benefits that came with military service and everybody came together in the same unit and, and you worked together. I mean, what better representation of what America stands for? And so, to have either—and I'd like to explore this a bit—top-down or bottom-up uh, problems that seek to undo that. And by top-down, you know, notably, you've taken the task—you uh, know, the Secretary of Defense, you've questioned uh, books on reading lists uh, with the Chief of Naval Operations, you know, the other service chiefs that have allowed these kind of training packages to come in. So how does that affect the morale and the mentality and the perspective of the junior uh, officer and enlisted ranks where they thought they were all unified but now they're being exposed to the ideas that there are these inherent uh, skin tone differences that should uh, cause them to view each other differently or in our education system and in popular culture, American youth coming into the military have been tuned to think this way. And so then the military structure has to change that mentality and convince them that, no, we all are Americans, right? So some of the legislation that you proposed to deny funding to schools that teach 1619 uh, theories, right? Uh, as well as the corporations that are having uh, you know white caucus focus groups, right? Lockheed Martin, I believe that you took the task for those sorts of things. So we've got it uh, bottom up, uh where the military has to correct that and we have top-down instruction from various appointees that are imposing this if you could kind of explain or talk to that as a bit i, I think we'd all appreciate that.
1: yeah <clears throat> well i do think it's harmful to both recruiting and retention you know congressman crenshaw and i have been collecting whistleblower complaints for now well into the hundreds and the count of those complaints we've received and this actually goes back to what i was first hearing from friends of mine who are still in uh active duty and who were first facing uh, some kinds of training sessions as far back as last summer. Uh, And it really does date, I think, back to last summer after the death of George Floyd, but it has been uh, even more uh, prevalent uh, since Joe Biden took office and uh, secretary Austin ordered the so-called training stand down uh, back in January or or February. Um, I I think it is mostly top down. That's what I've heard from uh, my buddies. Who have been talking to me about it that's what we've heard uh through our uh, whistleblower website um unlike in some places as you say in some of these corporations it's very much the young uh coddled woke workers who are demanding the indoctrination and complaining if they've got any dissidents in their ranks who don't buy the woke corporate line um i don't think you have a lot of that from what we've heard in the military a lot of it does tend to be top down i think some of this though is the way that guidance typically filters down from the very top in the military, Dakota, you remember what it, this was like. If if the commanding general wants to have a formation at 6 a.m. Um, and he wants the entire division to be out there, well, at, at every echelon, it's going to be five minutes prior to the uh, <laughs> <At> entire <least. laughs> echelon. So by the time it gets down to the poor private, he's going to be in formation at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, waiting two and a half hours uh, based on what his team leader told him. Um, I've seen this in training settings as well. You know, there was a time, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, the Army grew concerned that there was too many uh, accidents between vehicles and pedestrians, usually during um, morning PT. So the Army decreed that part of the, um, the physical fitness training uniform would be a reflective safety belt, which started out during hours of darkness in the morning when you're conducting uh PT. And very quickly by the time it got down to the front line was you'll wear a reflective belt at all times you have on your PTs, even in 120 degree weather in the middle of Iraq in the daytime. So these uh what can be vague or general guidance at a higher level um filters down and, and I think can sometimes take on a life of its own when it gets down to the brigade, battalion and below level. Um, that doesn't mean that we should tolerate it or that we should um, not take every step to tell them to knock it off. That's one reason why when Secretary Austin testified in front of the Armed Service Committee last month, I pressed him to answer what I thought were very simple yes or no questions um, about doctrines uh, that come from critical race theory, like whether uh, there are any races that are inherently oppressive and oppressed or whether people should be promoted as uh, based on their skin color is a key factor or the key factor should be things like tactical and operational excellence and leadership and integrity. Um, And of course he responded um, that no, skin color should not be a primary reason for promotion. No, there are no inherently oppressive or oppressed races. Um, It's good for troops across the service to see uh, the secretary say that. He later said in another hearing that we do not teach critical race theory in our military um i I think that's what he believes and that's the guidance he's put out um but like those reflective belts or like the zero six formation um it doesn't always translate to the front lines and i wanted every trooper around the world to see the secretary say that and i'm glad he did say that and i hope that we begin to see a course correction here um that's operational unit training you know units do all kinds of training uh every month every quarter twice a year, once a year, you remember that, all of the veterans or service members watching, today remember it on everything from, you know, tobacco safety training, motorcycle training, what have you. it spans the game. Uh, we had equal opportunity training when I was in the army as well. Um, nothing like we have now, um, you know, back then, it was like state of the fact that we all believed that this country is committed to colorblindness and we uh, respect everyone irrespective the color of their skin or their ethnicity, or for that matter, their political beliefs or their religious views or anything else. And it was a a regular reminder. uh, That was the expectations we had for all of our soldiers. And if they didn't meet those expectations, there'd be severe consequences. Um, But that's a kind of frontline unit training. I I think there's a slightly separate issue in our professional military schools um, and our service academies, um, where obviously you spend more time exploring academic theories, but I think it's still a total waste of time and inappropriate say a war college or the service academies to be assigning you know critical race theory primers or um, trying to indoctrinate students there i think that's especially in our professional military schools a reflection that uh they've, be- they've become too much like graduate schools where people are going to get masters or, or phds as opposed to going to hone their craft of war fighting uh and that every minute they dedicate to some critical race theory primer uh, could have been a uh, our better dedicated to, I don't know, uh, books on seafaring or U.S. grants memoirs or studying Chinese military doctrine, things that we actually expect and need our officers to know.
0: Yeah, I mean, the military is already a representation of America, right? And so its primary purpose being defending the country against foreign attack and these sorts of things, you would expect that it would spend all of its waking hours looking at that. And, you know, there's this difference between being a college student uh deciding to take a philosophy course or political science course and engaging these you know debates over theoretical constructs right and whether you question the underpinnings of western you know liberal democracies Mm -hmm. or not and being a corporal or a captain in a unit and having somebody come in with a deck of powerpoint slides and conveying what is a theory but really in more of a fact sort of presentation that there are these divisions, these perceptions, oppressed versus oppressors. I mean, those are two different constructs there. And, yeah. and it's and to your point, you know, good idea fairy comes in. You know, wouldn't this be cool or we should broaden our perceptions and stuff? And then when you actually implement that in the real world and how it manifests in the 0330. You know, formation to prep for a 0, 0600 formation at higher levels. I mean, there are these practical realities of doing something in the real world. And to your comment about uh, Secretary Austin, uh, or if we were talking about General Milley, or the Chief of Naval Operations Gilday, or what have you, you know, I, I accept that there is a possibility that they are genuinely, sincerely interested in these different perspectives. But it seems then to be completely tone deaf about how that might be perceived in, in the junior ranks, right? I mean, that, that because they might have this kind of enlightened philosophical approach, does that put the imprimatur of you know, condoning or supporting or sponsoring or formalizing these sorts of things and not recognizing the impact that it would have on recruiting and retention, how people within the ranks might view each other, how the external world, you know, where China has really been focusing on uh, their concern about the feminization, as they term it, of Chinese male youth, and trying to strengthen them up and make this, you know, kind of war-winning force. Russia's, you know, ad campaigns are all about defending hearth and home, and this very kind of muscular sort of approach to warfare. And then on our side, you know, of those oceans, uh, it's just domestic, cultural, ideological left versus right sort of battle that's going on. And, and I share your concerns about the loss of focus on warfighting efficacy and warfighting focus on effectiveness and team unit cohesion and team building. Um, so I, I'm just not
1: quite sure what's going on at the senior ranks of the services. Yeah, I think uh, there's a big difference between you know reading a critical race theory book um, and trying to understand to the extent that it's comprehensible at all, which I would <laughs> dispute in many cases, versus its application. Um, You know, some people have compared it to reading Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital. Um, There's a time and place for that. You know, if I learned that our service academies were teaching Western philosophy uh, uh, survey courses and they didn't have a Karl Marx selection there, that would be surprising to me because Marx's writing is an important step in the evolution of Western philosophy, especially German philosophy. So there's a time and place for that. but I wouldn't expect it to be on one of the uh, service chief's professional reading lists. And I wouldn't expect it to be uh, taught down to the lowest level because there's no practical application of it. Um, So it's it's very different between what you might teach 18 to 22 year olds in an academic setting about knowledge versus the application of that knowledge down to the lowest level in tactical units that should be focused on tactical, and operational excellence on being prepared to fight and to win our nation's wars? It it introduces these
0: questions, right? So, um, you know, I've had colleagues that say, well, you know, there's always this opportunity for the junior soldier, sailor, or space guardian uh, to push back, you know, the question, the legality of, or the appropriateness of the things. My experience was, you're not gonna find, you know, a, a, a first lieutenant, uh, or a sergeant uh one out of ten thousand perhaps it steps forward to push back against something that the command structure is handed down so i just don't see that that's really a viable course and i think that also uh, many times uh, senior uniformed officials that come before a senate committee for example are really bounded by the edicts or the or the directors the guidelines that are handed down by the white house i mean it's not like they can come in and directly oppose something that they have been told to do uh, via the Secretary of Defense and implementing. So they're a little bit bounded by this the context within their work within which they're working. And so then it's incumbent, I believe, uh, responsible uh, for external actors. You know, yourself as a, as a serving U.S. senator representing Arkansas. Myself now as a private individual. You know, in the policy community, uh, moms and dads that will approach school boards. Uh, to combat these policies about teaching CRT and similar sorts of things in K through 12 and all that stuff. So it's almost like we have to support our own military in ways to challenge things that perhaps it can't uh, uh, overtly push back on, uh, you know, by itself. I mean, does that make sense? Is there a role
1: there yeah. for the cam- common American to do that? Yeah, you know, a- after my exchange with Secretary Austin at the Armed Services Committee, I sent it to a few of my buddies who are still in active duty, most of whom um, have reached the ranks of uh, field officers now, or field grade officers by now. And I said, see, the, the top boss has said, you don't have to sit through this nonsense anymore. You should uh, push back on and tell your troops to, and almost to a person, all of them suck. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> it is easier just to sit through it, to not pipe up, not put at risk your opportunities for promotion, especially once you reach the ranks of senior NCO or a field grade officer. Um, and for all this junior list out there, they probably think it's easy just to sit and ignore it anyway. Um, but it's, it's something they shouldn't have to sit through and, and ignore, um, it's often hard to ignore when you're being forced to watch a video that declares um, there's systemic racism and white privilege throughout our military, which is one of the complaints we received, um, or that white soldiers were singled out during uh, equal opportunity training, that they didn't have much to say Um, That one Hispanic officer who disputed claims of systemic racism um, had himself his remarks marginalized by the speakers at these events. Uh, We shouldn't have our troops forced to sit through that kind of thing. And again, I think it's kind of inevitable when you're pushing these concepts, even at a vague level from the very top because it gets filtered down through the ranks in the same way that the 0600 formation does, and the privates have to be out there at 0330. Um, That's why it's best just to focus on war fighting, primarily, and when you conduct occasional training sessions, should be what we learn. This is an equal opportunity organization. We do not treat anyone differently based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity, or for that matter, their political views or religion. And if you do, there's going to be serious consequences. Roger, soldiers say Roger out, and that's the standards you enforce. And look, I mean, these some of these issues were addressed. You know, when I was going through military processing or basic training, I'm sure the case as well. I mean, they scanned all soldiers, for instance, for tattoos um, that might have identified you as belonging to or affiliated with or sympathetic with an extremist organization or a criminal organization. Back back in my days, it was primarily. I think the they were always the My recruiter, anyway, was saying it was Aryan Nation or the Crips and the Bloods, where Mm. we came from. Um, So this is an issue the Army and the military, more broadly, has addressed for a very long time. Uh, But over these last several months, I think it's kind of uh, um, transformed into something that's much more insidious, and that's why I put my foot down on it.
0: Yeah, there are these tipping points, you know, that something can grow for many years, let's say, in an academic setting. And then there's just enough inertia, you know, enough attention, or maybe there's a sparking moment uh, where it becomes much, much greater very quickly and catches a lot of people by surprise. Uh, You you have built an extraordinary network over the years, Uh, you know, long past the military service, uh, serving in the House for a term, and then in the Senate since 2015. So part of this uh, question has to do with the sense that you're getting from colleagues and from the network. Uh, even a week ago on this website that you are co-sponsoring with Representative Crenshaw, um, I think back then it was well over 400 comments uh, that had been uh, posted to that. So you're getting feedback from the military as well, and this leads then into some of the word games that are played. You know, critical race theory is a specific thing, identity politics is a specific thing, uh, gender equity or, or how gender identification, uh, sexual identity is a sort of thing. So. Each one of them can be treated in their unique context, but to my mind, they're really all parts of a larger puzzle of these competing ideas and philosophies uh, about how America defines itself and how you know this great melting pot of all these various groups get together and relate to each other. So do you get a sense from the feedback and the website and from your colleagues? Uh, there in Congress and from various constituents that might communicate with you that there's an understanding of the larger message, not so much the letter of the law, but the intent of the law, right? The larger picture uh, that is unfolding here and being painted and where the people really appreciate that and and understand how one element, you know, CRT and the military, uh, can represent kind of a larger battle that's being fought and how that impacts not only the effectiveness and the coherence and the cohesion of the military, but the larger fabric of American society?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, All of the the troopers who've been contacting us are sometimes veterans um, or family members of troops uh, are deeply concerned about it. Again, the military is one of the most important institutions in our society. Uh, They don't just play a kid's game for money or sell sugary beverages. Um, They're the institution that keeps us free and safe. They make almost everything else possible in our country in protecting our way of life. Um, so it's the most corrosive place where you could teach these false, specious doctrines. Um, and, and I think most of the most of the contact we get, most of the my buddies who contact me still, they just want to know why why we can't just go back to what we all took an oath to, our founding principles, you know, like in the do- Declaration or the Constitution, or for that matter why these training sessions can't just, you know, replay uh, Martin Luther King's dream speech, and that we should all be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, or to put it in military terms, by our tactical and operational performance, in addition to the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Um, and this all, like I said, this goes back about a year. I've talked to a lot of people who said, no, they don't don't receive ever, receive ever, or remember ever getting this kind of, indoctrination uh training sessions pushed on them before the george floyd death um and it's gotten worse over the last six months that's one reason again why i've highlighted it and i'll continue to highlight it and uh, i may start you know probing um nominees to be promoted uh to the ranks of 07 to 010 on their views on it and uh what's happened in their commands you know normally as you know uh, military nominations are uh, handled at the staff level. There's not um, a deep review of it unless there's a red flag. Uh, usually, there's almost never a confirmation hearing unless it's also a four-star promotion to a major combatant command or one of the services. Uh, but maybe it's time to change that. Maybe it's time that we start ensuring that our flag officers um, subscribe to those very basic principles that are outlined in our declaration or in uh, King's Dream Speech. Well, amen to that. I mean, we've only got about two minutes here, and so I, I do want to
0: note we're rolling right into the Fourth of July, you know, Independence Day, uh, uh, Memorial Holiday weekend. And I was really struck by uh, some opening comments made by, Bar- by Larry Kudlow on a, his Fox Business show uh, yesterday, where he, where he really uh, emphasized the importance of the Declaration of Independence and all of the principles woven into that. You know, that that how we define ourselves as the people what we really hold dear, that all people are created equal, and these sorts of things. So I think it it really dovetails nicely with the emphasis that you're putting on, uh, what are we about, what are we emphasizing, and how do we convey that to our troops? So really, yeah. with just a, a one minute left, uh, if you'd like to kind of wrap things up here, and then we'll thank our audience and
1: uh, uh, push off into a great weekend. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing uh could be more opposed to the doctrines of critical race theory than our declaration and with independence day coming up on saturday i would encourage all of you to take the time it's not very long to reread the declaration of independence um and if you have children read that declaration of them as well abraham lincoln used to call the constitution the frame of silver around the apple apple of gold the declaration um The Declaration, which wasn't just a political document for the time, declaring our grievances against George III and announcing that we were going to seek independence, but rather that announced universal, timeless principles that we are all born equal in the eyes of God, that we have natural rights, and that it's the role of government, first and foremost, to protect those rights. So I would just encourage you all to go back and reread the declaration, not just the opening paragraphs, you know, read the bill of particulars because it says a lot about how we conceived our governments, that government should be represented, government power should be separated and it should be limited. And of course, read the concluding remarks or the concluding passage as well. Uh, This was a real dangerous moment uh, for the Patriots who signed that document. They pledged their lives, uh, their honor and, our Uh, sacred honor and their fortunes. Um, Some of them lost their lives, a lot of them lost their fortunes, but not a single person who signed that document lost their sacred honor. I I can't
0: think of a better way to close out this session. I really appreciate you taking your time for this. Uh, I encourage everybody to really track what you're doing in defense of the country in support of our military. And again, thank you so much, Senator, for, for spending this occasion. Thank you for our audience, for listening in. And uh, just God bless everybody. And, and what a great country we are so blessed to
1: be a part of. Thank you. Thank you, Dakota. And God bless everyone. And uh, God bless the United States of America. Have a very patriotic Independence Day weekend.